Tim Strong is the head of agriculture finance for Opportunity International, a global nonprofit organization that uses financial services, training, and support to address some of the most pressing challenges facing those living in poverty around the world. He joined host Andrew Kaufman and the Bush Institute's Natalie Ganella Platts to discuss Opportunity International's mission and the incredible impact they are making for farmers in Sub-Saharan Africa. The privilege that we have is the ability to sit and spend time with the clients that we serve, and usually it's their ideas. I'd love to be able to toot my own horn and say, look at this brilliant idea I came up with, but a lot of it is just literally a farmer saying, this would make my life easier. Um, And that's really where adaptation innovation seems to originate. So really it's practicing that skill of listening and uh, not just hearing, but absorbing it and putting it into action. Hear more from Tim on this episode of The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Today we are joined by Tim Strong, the head of agriculture finance for Opportunity International, a global nonprofit organization that uses financial services, training, support to address pressing challenges facing those in poverty around the world. Tim has traveled here to be with us at the Bush Center today, and we really appreciate the time, Tim. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And our co-host today is the Director of Women's Advancement at the George W. Bush Institute, Natalie Ganella platz Buffalo Bills extraordinaire, f- fan extraordinaire. Natalie, thank you. Thank you. I don't know if today is a great day to be a Bills fan, but well, the Cowboys lost the Eagles yesterday, so we're you know we're in the same boat today, unfortunately. Um, so let's let's start with with the basics. Uh, tell us uh, for our audience that's not familiar with it. Could you tell us about Opportunity Opportunity International in general, and specifically about the work you do? Yeah, sure thing. So it's been a really interesting journey for us. We've just finished our fifty third year as an organization working across thirty three different markets around the world. Uh, For us, ultimately, we have a fairly ambitious goal of trying to see the end of extreme poverty within our lifetime. It sounds hyperbolic, but at the end of the day, what we know already is that there are now less than 750 million people uh, left in the world that are living on less than $2.15 a day. And really what we see is that the goal of our organization and how we're formed and how we're organized is really to look at uh, economic solutions for that economic problem. Um, There's a lot of theory and philosophy around poverty and why it exists in our world, but really the belief that leveraging financial tools are one of the most effective ways to address that. So, you know, we really see that the resources, tools, and access to financial services are really a way for uh, the majority of the world's uh, poor who are living at the bottom of the economic pyramid to find dignity and independence from extreme poverty. Did you say we're down to 750 million? Yeah. That's a humongous number. Like, I, I know it always, it always surprises me that the scale of, of this. Can you, can you expand on that a little, just how, how, what we're talking about when we talk about the, the scale of this issue? And the populations that are comprised within that, because I think that's really, really important to yeah. the region, the gender, the age. Definitely. So, I mean, ultimately, though, despite the size of how big that seems, this is a success story. When we look at, in our lifetimes, what's been accomplished globally already, the last 30 years, we've seen a decrease from what used to be 33% of the global population living in poverty to now what's less than around 8 to 9%. So we've actually seen success happening on this, and we really believe in the projection that by 2030, 2035, this actually can be completely eliminated globally. I know it sounds ambitious, but that is the current curve. 
And we would be really on target on track for 2030 had the COVID-19 pandemic not occurred, had the economic ramifications not fallen into place. Um, we can cite a number of different uh, academic researches on that, but ultimately that's the, you know, the trajectory we've been on. In terms of the demographics, what we know already is uh, the population that my program serves to um, really provide services to at the end of the day, smallholder farmers, represent 80% of those living in uh, extreme poverty. The majority are rural. Right? This is where poverty exists in the world. These are the hardest to reach areas, and they're hard because it's expensive to reach them. They're far, they're remote, they're not organized, they're not um, really concentrated in terms of where they live. Very much to Natalie's point, of course, um, the majority of those um, that are rural areas, 65% of labor on rural farms is done by women across the world. The major place where these farms are located is in sub-Saharan Africa. And sub-Saharan Africa itself, you know, contains a vast majority of the remaining farmable lands across the globe. And I think that's a really important distinction because this is both a challenge right now in, in reaching these populations, but they also represent a significant opportunity when we look to sustainability, um, as well as the advancement of free and fair societies and the ripple effect that then has on us here in the United States and for everyone everywhere. So... More statistics, apologies. We, we can definitely yeah, do some narratives on it. On the statistics front, right, when we look at what has to happen globally, right? So 2050, we're looking at massive growth in population around the world. Africa as a continent is currently the youngest continent in the world uh, and really where a lot of the change is going to happen. Um, what we do know already is that by 2050, the, globe's, you know, the global food production will have to double to meet population growth. We know that for fruits and vegetables, we'll have to triple in terms of what's being produced. So where does that happen? How does that happen? Of course, a lot of the efficiencies and gains that have happened through the Green Revolution that really saved what, over a billion lives in India. Right? When we look at the, what uh, hybrid breeding has done for agriculture there, it's been significant. That has to happen again. But 60% of the remaining unopened arable land in the world is in sub-Saharan Africa. So when we look at what that means in terms of resources, investments, dividends uh, for the future, um, really starting to target those markets and really doing meaningful work is, is significant. So when you talk about Opportunity International specifically and what they're doing to help address this problem. Like, let's, let's talk more specifically about your role and what, what y'all are trying to do. Yeah, thanks. Um, so it's been a really exciting season for us. When we look at the last three to five years and the growth for our programming, not just for our agricultural finance program, but for our education finance work, our work in microbanking, has been material growth. So as I mentioned earlier, we work in 33 different markets, primarily in uh, developing countries. And really what we've seen in terms of last year alone, we've seen a growth in the number of children accessing quality education. That's grown from 5.3 million children to 10.7 million children in one year. So doubling in terms of statistics. Within my program, lending to smallholder farmers increased over to $350 million, lent to some of the hardest to reach, most expensive to reach clients uh, that's possible. For total clients, we grew from 6.6 .6 million to 8.4 million clients, and savings accounts have nearly doubled from 9.9 .9 million to 16.3. What that means, partnerships with financial institutions, 77 up to 105. So good growth, good outreach, uh, really focusing on markets that are hard to reach. But beyond that, it's really important to look at what has it resulted in. Right? Financial inclusion is not an end in itself. Right? Like, I like to say my, my job is not to get as many African farmers in debt as possible, right. but really how is that used? 
So for us, you know, what's really exciting is we look at the annual gap of financing in rural communities of $26 billion that's missing every year just in sub-Saharan Africa. Our goal is really to see, um, to see smallholder farmers grow more and to earn more. That's literally all we're trying to do. So by seeing investments into their farms, by seeing the extension services and training and support go out to them, we've seen harvest yields increase by 57% and increase by 67% just through those three things, financial services, training, and support. And the innovation that you use through Opportunity International's programs in the agriculture sense are so creative. They're so innovative, but at their essence too, they're very small, simple adjustments that yield big impact. Can you talk a little bit about that, particularly in terms of types of cro- crops, um, as well as you know the impact of fertilizer and climate change and all of that? I mean, you guys really take a holistic approach to how you engage in these communities. Well, how do I keep this uh, straightforward for <laughs> for this case? Keep it uh, I have for a t- yeah. <laughs> what do we say? Keep it simple, smarty pants. I think mm, is how it's like been that. retermed, <laughs> redubbed by Ted Lasso. Um, An but, inspiration to us all. Yeah, right. It, it, it's it's interesting. Usually, the the simplest wins are the easiest wins at the end of the day. And for us, the privilege that we have is the ability to sit and spend time with the clients that we serve. And usually it's their ideas. I'd love to be able to toot my own horn and say, look at this brilliant idea I came up with. But a lot of it is just literally a farmer saying, this would make my life easier. Um, And that's really where adaptation innovation seems to originate. So really it's practicing that skill of listening and uh, not just hearing, but absorbing it and putting it into action. Um, let me give you just a, a quick anecdote of that and, and stray away from the talking points, if, you can, if I can, just in terms of what we've been looking at right now. Um, and we were just privileged to do a webinar on this two weeks ago, um, looking at um, the advance of artificial intelligence into agriculture. Right? So how are we moving into smart farming? We've had phenomenal partnerships with the European Space Union, uh, with other firms like Sensonomic out of Norway, and looking at these big innovations, big touch approaches. But ultimately, what I see is making the biggest difference we to wind that back a little bit, that's a little teaser. Um, we deploy what we call farmer support agents. We recruit local lead farmers in their own communities, equip them with a smartphone, um, digitized and standardized training. We can get a lot of impact metrics, so that's why I know about yields and incomes and everything, because I get it at census level every month mm-hmm. from uh, all of the farmers that we're working with across our program. But there's been some gaps. So it's been a really hard year, really hard couple of years in the country that's adopted my wife and myself, the country of Malawi. Two years ago, we got hit by what was called Cyclone Anna, which at that point was the second most severe tropical storm ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, That made landfall, and what we saw is even households that I know a decade's worth of success, progress, growth in their economic position literally wiped away in the course of a weekend. Um, The Shiri River, the largest river in our country, jumped its banks, flooded through rural communities, and and just rampant devastation. Last year, uh, Cyclone Freddy hit, which is now the most severe tropical storm to ever hit the Southern Hemisphere. We're seeing really this this uptick in terms of the aggressive nature of uh, climate irregularity, and really for our perspective trying to say what can we do to support farmers in in an ever uncertain environment. Certainly farmers are probably the ones affected most by this stuff. Yeah, and that's what we know, right? When we look at that instability, it hits the poor the hardest. They have the fewest resources to fall back on. So what we weren't expecting, though, right? And so you know, we you know, spooled up the engines and ran out and did everything we could do to help. Um, but the following months, more regular rainfall, 
higher rainfall, more humidity. And we had done a lot of work to innovate to promote the growth of soy as a key value chain for the farmers that we're supporting. Um, Malawi historically has been one of the largest tobacco producing countries in the world. We really wanted to see a shift in that. We wanted to see better soil health. Soy for the non-farmers in the room uh, creates its own nitrogen the end of the day. So it produces fertilizer in the soil. So we've had a really successful push. We also saw a huge transition of primarily men who are tobacco farmers. And then we saw this growth in female clients because we shifted to a crop that was more appropriate for them. So that was all great news. After Cyclone Freddy, more rainfall. And we had an outbreak of what's called soy rust blight across the entire country. 90% of all farmers in Southern Africa got affected this year by soy blight. Um, so we were doing some testing with our farmers and trying to you know, scratch our heads. We, you know, we were not celebrating jumping up and down. We were saying, this is a horrible situation. What might we be able to do better as we look at this? So I have a digital innovations team. They're brilliant. They're primarily ex-Microsoft, so hopefully everyone's okay with that. You know, there's, some, sure. there's a lot of uh, Apple books here on the table. Oh, we, you know, we, our IT department lets us pick which direction oh, we uh, go in. So we're, you know, and actually, and, all, and Bill Gates is a, is a uh, phenomenally important figure in the work that we do with PEPFAR. So it's all, oh, yeah. you know, we all we're, we're all together here. So we started just asking questions and, and listening to answers, and, and we started a huge push into human-centered design, innovation testing, and we sat down with our uh, lead farmers and we said, you know, we'd like to test A, B, C, and D. What's the highest priority? Our innovation team said, we really want to test chat GPT with your farmers. And I said, no. (laughs) Our lawyer said the same thing. Like, I really want to push hard, right? I want to be strategically decisive. I want to say, this is important, this isn't. And sometimes I get carried away. (laughs) In a bar, at the bargaining table, they said, okay, we'll take these three other ideas off the table if you let us test this one. And they're like, okay, that's a good deal. Um, so we sat down with uh, specifically Anna Chimalezeni, who's one of our farmer support agents and lead farmers, and we said, okay, look at this computer. I know you don't type English. So we sat her down with an officer and we said, ask the computer a question. <laughs> and I, yeah, I could see by your face how... You know, I'm very you curious to hear what the question is. Yeah, and she said... What herbicide do I buy to treat soy blight? And I, it was a long day. I also had my CEO in the room, and I'm rolling my eyes saying, you don't buy a herbicide to treat that. It's a fungus problem to buy a fungicide. And ChatGPT said the same thing. So then all of a sudden I'm paying attention. Right? ChatGPT is smarter than I thought it was. Yeah. Um, and now she's paying attention. And she's like, okay, where do I bund- what fungicide do I buy? And where do I buy it? And how much is it? And how often do I treat my plants with that? And how do I inform the other 150 farmers I'm working with on how to do exactly the same thing? Because at the outbreak of the, the blight, um, which I know is a, you know almost biblical term, right? it took her, she told us, over three weeks to get just a response from the Ministry of Agriculture's Extension Services. Hmm. When we started looking deeper in it, many of our other uh, agents and lead farmers, it took them over six weeks. And she was now getting the same answers within 15 seconds. So she turned to to me, and I got to shine a little bit in front of our CEO, um, and she turned to both of us and said, if you give me this tool, my farmers will think I'm a genius, (laughs) right? Um, And there's no way to resist feedback like that. So we said, okay, let's call up some friends at the Ministry of Agriculture. And we're currently now building a full partnership with them to essentially take that computing power, that engine, and put it on rails, right? Like, 
Anna on her farm doesn't need to know what an American Midwest farmer would do to treat soy blight. Right. Um, she needs to know what she can do on her farm there and to support her farmers around her. So we've taken the, the full approved curricula, which is you know 800 some odd pages from the Ministry of Agriculture, and we're running our own versions of generative AI just on that. Hmm. It doesn't access everything, and we're feeding in more content as we go with partnership with the ministry, of course. Right. We wouldn't do this by ourselves. So really looking at, you know, on a day-by-day basis, how do we continue to innovate? How do we really hear these ideas and find solutions? Because it's, you know, again, from that story, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Which is obvious, right? Yeah. Well, but what is interesting, and, and uh, you know, I want to dive down this for a little bit, and then Natalie, I know we want to talk some, talk some policy. You mentioned that uh, Malawi is your now adopted home. How did you end up down this path, you personally, and, and with your wife, who is here listening today? Hello. Um, end up, and how did you end up there, and, and how did this all come about? Yeah. Um, just, you know, and again, saying hi to my wife and my in-laws who are listening here. Um, they put me on radio, and they put her on camera, right? Can you see the difference? <laughs> I can, that makes sense. That checks out. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely an interesting journey. I, you know, I had the privilege of uh, formerly working alongside the United States Department of Agriculture um, when I was younger, working with Extension Services to our version in the U.S. of small farmers, looking at crop diversification, niche markets. But um, I had the massive mistake of uh, onboarding a new trainee who happened to be a U.S. Peace Corps recruiter um, on one of our farms and every morning getting lectures about how important it is to really make sure that agriculture around the rest of the world is really starting to catch up as well. Um, so on those you know sweaty yet foggy mornings um, in the fields, um, eventually was converted. Uh, I had a very wise father who said, two and a half years seems like a very long commitment. Why don't you go do something else? Um, so went and worked on a number of agriculture development short-term projects, three months uh, in Mozambique, India, Nepal, China, uh, and then got my invitation to serve in the Peace Corps, and they sent me to Malawi. Um, that was ultimately incredibly life-changing for me, um, so much so that um, I got an offer from the Clinton Foundation to work in HIV-AIDS uh, with the Ministry of Health. Um, so your mention of PEPFAR is very significant for me as well, having worked specifically in PEPFAR programming and really seen President Bush investment into PEPFAR to be one of the most life-changing things as we've seen just like that curve for extreme poverty around the world, we're following that same trajectory in terms of what's happened with HIV and AIDS around the world. So really exciting to be able to be here uh, with yourselves on that as well. Well, and, and it's it's important because we, we uh, here in the U.S., we take the, so many of us, not everybody, but so many of us take the abundance and ease to get food so so for granted here. Um, and it's it's easy to forget that there's places in the world where that's not, large swaths of the world where that's not necessarily true. And, um, you know, it's, it's good to hear the path of how you, you know, you got to this important work. Um, one of my favorite poets out there, he's kind of an agrarian farmer poet out of Kentucky, farms on an island in the middle of a river. His name is Wendell Berry. Uh, one of my favorite quotes of his is, eating at its very core is an agricultural act. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, you know, when we think about the meals and you know the the amazing veterans luncheon that we wandered our way through the end of on the way here and what that means right where that comes from it's incredibly important and thinking about how global supply chains are continuing to shift especially right now and what it means to feed the world uh, in the years to come let's dive in a little bit on that as well because a lot of the countries that we're speaking about the region of sub-saharan africa in and of itself is I don't want to call it the epicenter of food insecurity at the moment, but it's one of the key 
targets when it comes to confronting, you know, food insecurity, but particularly acute food insecurity. Um, and, you know, obviously the situation, um, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine has impacted that, um, quite significantly. Um, we've also seen Russia and China, you know, vying for footing on the continent. And so, you know, the work that you do really is at the center of this, um, struggle for influence, um, across sub-Saharan Africa and was just curious to your perspective on why agriculture is so central to that and why U.S. engagement, European engagement right now is really, really critical. Really timely question, right? We've been struggling with this. I tried, you know? (laughs) So for, for those that haven't been following, you know, bizarre, unique trade, uh, policy like I do, um, (laughs) The African Growth and Opportunity Act is up for renewal right now. Um, it expires September 2025. This is effectively the Africa-U.S. trade agreement, which is deliberately put in place to look at Chinese economic influence across Africa. So right now, you know, the Secretary of State and the President are looking at what can be done in terms of modifications. Of course, there are some hints that there's some issues with a few African markets' human rights stances. Um, but ultimately, looking at really what you know the U.S. can do on a trade and economics perspective um, for increasing uh, our influence in the continent. What we say at the end of the day, nature abhors a vacuum. So I've already seen a couple of instances and seasons where, um, as the U.S., we've dialed back our influence in Africa, and we've seen a direct increase in Chinese and Russian influence. Right. So when we look at what's really important here, at the end of the day, we look at two major sectors. It's agriculture and natural resources. Um, On the Chinese front, look, uh, my wife and I have been obsessed in the recent weeks around what's happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo, right? So it's still relatively not well known around the world, but there's been over 6 million people killed in the current instability, right? We look at a lot of uh, the neighboring countries in in East Africa and their influence on that. That's incredibly important and shouldn't be diminished. But we also... You know, on flights into Lumubashi, my wife and I will sit on a plane and be surrounded by Chinese businessmen. Full stop, right, without question. We also watch the Chinese acquisition of the London Freeport copper and cobalt mines, right? So all copper, all batteries for your Tesla, not, no pointing fingers here. Um, but really, you know, the direction the world is heading in. That's now being acquired by Chinese-backed corporations and, and Chinese government-backed corporations. We've also been watching really closely the, the situation in Zambia, right, which is one of the, the world's largest copper mining countries you know, outright. And currently, you know, 30% of the Zambian national debt is owned by the Chinese Export-Import Bank. Full stop. They've also been taking over $5.8 billion worth of agricultural and mining interests in that country, which is 40% up from the year before. So faster growth than my program has, that's for sure. Um, in terms of the, the, you know, really the investments. What I think is most terrifying for me on the agricultural sector and, and with my background, the largest fertilizer that's used across Africa for smallholder farmers is three small letters. It's called NPK. It's nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Currently, Chinese phosphorus, they double the production of the U.S. in terms of global phosphorus. They're also the largest producer of nitrogen. Russia They are 20% of the global production of potassium and the largest exporter of nitrogen around the world. So when we look at who actually controls agricultural production, currently it's Russia and China, globally. 
So these are pretty important to look at as we look at also how Russia has systematically sought to undercut democracy in Africa. We've seen economic and trade relations um, and the revenue between the countries. Uh, Russia to African revenue has doubled uh, from $9.9 billion in 2013, now up to $17 billion in 2021. So, you know, follow the money, I think is the expression. Yeah. I think you're uh, preaching uh, a message that we are often saying here is that what you, what happens around the globe matters everywhere. From the U.S. from the U.S. onward, you can't just put your head in the sand and pretend that these problems and these issues that are happening overseas don't matter here, and that they're not going to affect us. On, that we have some magic force field around our borders that things aren't going to affect us here, and it, it's pretty clear that they can. Yeah, I mean, and even look at some of the things that you know aren't staples, but are really what make life enjoyable here in the U.S. So the majority of the world's cocoa is produced in West Africa. Hmm. The majority of the world's vanilla is produced in Madagascar. So think about, uh, I'd have to actually ask my wife across the, the room what, that, what ice cream that is um, that has vanilla and chocolate in it. But um, effectively, you know, what we're talking about is the things that really get us excited, um, that get us out of bed in the morning. That's directly, you know, I wouldn't say at risk, but directly tied into this conversation. Um, beyond that, in terms of the, you know, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, um, I won't speak specifically about the conflict, but what we've watched is a doubling and a tripling in terms of uh, the price of fertilizer across Africa and inputs due to that, that and COVID-19 in conjunction. So what do you do as a farmer if 60% of your operating costs to run your business doubles and triples in price? You know, that's really significant in terms of impact on global food supply chains. And that then has knock-on effect on these families' ability to send their children to school or, you know, what opportunities their kids um, and other dependents can seek, you know, in in their own lives. And so when you have a continent that comprises 30% of the world's young people, again, this is both a significant challenge if we don't confront, um, you know, the widespread poverty, the the potential for disenfranchisement, the potential for exploitation by powers like China and, and Russia. But it's also a huge opportunity. And to your point earlier, AGOA, and just rethinking how the U.S. reengages across the continent is really critical right now. Yeah. And I, I really like how you put that, Natalie. I know on the industry side... They Again, t- I try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they talk about either the, the, the youth bulge as a problem in Africa... Um, but there's been more and more of a sentiment coming up lately of the youth dividend. And if we make those investments now, what will that look like? Right? When we look at countries like Uganda, whose average age is 14.8 years, average across the country. Uh, my wife knows the t- statistics better than I do, but even Malawi, our, our, our home country, um, almost I think about 50% of the population is under the age of 18. So really, what does that mean for the future? And when we look at some of the global problems that we have right now, Right? So we see massive migrations of rural youth into urban areas. Really, the expectation of finding jobs, finding the better life. They're scrolling. They are, they are already scrolling Facebook. And uh, I just dated myself because I said Facebook. I should be saying. <laughs> TikTok. They're looking at TikTok and their Insta yeah. feeds. Um, and what they are seeing is the potential of wealth. And so they leave the farm and they go to the urban areas and they feel disenfranchised. That mansion is not theirs, and that job is not theirs, and that employment opportunity is not there. So what do they do next? And you see the mass migration from Africa into Europe. You start to see a lot of the displaced people. You see a lot of 
um, communities that are ready for radicalization. Um, so a lot of um, this does tie back to what does it mean for rural poverty? And on the flip side, what does rural prosperity mean? What could be done? What could be built? Um, how could we look at a change? And what gives me confidence and gives me joy as I think about it is we've watched what's happened over the last 100, 150 years here in the U.S. We've seen change across Europe. And we've seen now only 2% of American families are involved in agriculture. What gives me hope is that Africa has a tendency to do it its own way. So I'm excited about what the years and the decades ahead of us have in terms of how things will change. And what I love about Opportunity International especially is how much of the staff and, and the leadership and the engagement teams are represented by people from the communities that are most affected by the issues you you engage on. And I think that's really, really critical is giving uh, these platforms, um, giving visibility and voice and influence in mobilizing these solutions. And I think Opportunity does a fantastic job in, in doing that. This has been really enlightening. And it's just, it is such an important reminder of, of these things that we take for granted. We, granted, we can't take for granted and we can't pretend that what's happening around the world doesn't is is just gonna it'll it'll sort itself out we have to be active participants and and as citizens we have to we have to be aware of these things and thank you for coming on to remind us of that but we do always have one last question for our guests um which is what are we not talking enough about as a nation that we should be talking about Really long pause there, right? <laughs> we, we sometimes we edit it out. Sometimes we leave it in for effect. We'll probably leave this one in for effect. <laughs> There's a lot, um, right? And I don't think our dialogue is fully matured as a nation yet. Um, again, I like staying on point in terms of what we're trying to do on our side because I, I think we have really narrowed down from a strategy perspective where we can see the highest return on investment or in some cases social return on investment. So looking at how are we affecting jobs now and income now, and how are we looking at the next generation? So when we look at how we work in developing rural employment and jobs and incomes, and then how are we also making sure there's a pathway for education of the next uh, generation's youth and really placement into those jobs. That's pretty critical for us. Um, so, you know, there are dozens of other touch points that we should, should be talking about. Um, there's a lot of relevant and important things, but from a, a strategist perspective, if I may, I like what you did um, how do we make sure that we isolate the things that we can focus on and make the largest impact with the incredibly short amount of time that we have in this world? Um, I've been deeply influenced by the perspective that it's not money and it's not networks and connections that limit us the most. It's time. So true. Well, thank you so much for coming down and visiting us here in the Red Bud Room uh, and enjoying this recording session with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Learn more about Opportunity International at opportunity.org. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Let us know what you think at the Bush Center on your favorite social media platform. Thank you for listening.